So, hey, listen, if you have a Bible or a device, we're going to be in Mark 10 today. Mark 10. This is a cringy passage, right? As I was reading, I thought, man, I am so glad that these are the passages that are not scrubbed away from the scripture, but basically laid bare for you and me to read. I was thinking about how many of these there are in the Bible the other day, and I thought you could almost have your own series. Just call it cringe. You could fill 20 weeks up of just the passages that whenever you read it, you're like, oh, I feel so bad for that person. I know he's dead and doesn't feel bad anymore, but I feel bad for him right now. This is one of those passages. We're going to start off the service. This is going to be a great passage to show us the person of Christ much more clearly, to lift a lot of weight for us and show us how to walk out of here. We're going to be in verse 35. And if you didn't bring a Bible or or don't have anything, an app on your phone, we'll put it up on the screen as well. But this is the word of the Lord for us today. In James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right. I'd like to talk about difficult people today. Just difficult people because we all have them. You all came in. Don't act like you didn't. We have people that they range between being an annoyance to us all the way to being offensive to us in some major way. I mean, aren't we excited for different personalities and opinions in the world? Aren't we excited about that? As long as they're in the other room, as long as they're not in our space, it's okay to say it. I think what's interesting about being annoyed is we don't even have to know someone to be annoyed by them. Whatever their Enneagram or their Myers-Briggs is, we're not about it. And they say something or they do something and it just starts to accumulate and grind on us. Everything they do compounds the annoyance. Or maybe somebody injured you. Maybe somebody is difficult to the point of harming you. They've caused damage. They've said something or done something that really hurts. And and, and maybe you're here with an open wound because of that. I mean, a lot of us came in here because when we think about it, we're still kind of carrying around something that somebody threw at us. It was something they did. But then it just kind of turns into everything that they do. And then it turns into, it's their smug face. That's the problem. It's their voice. It gets on my nerves. And then we, all we have to do is hear people talk about them. And then it just, the blood vessels start popping out and the, the blood pressure goes up. We just heard their name. That's all. We just heard their name. And here's the thing. We say outwardly that we have no issue with these people. We even forgive them, repeatedly forgive them. But yet we can't be in the same room with them all at the same time. 
So there's an obvious fracture between our words and our hearts. But we all find a way to get through it, don't we? I mean, here we are. We all find a way to live a life with that stirring in our hearts. You know what I find fascinating about Jesus? Is that he is able to show a deep hospitality to everyone around him, regardless of their personalities and their opinions and their track record. I mean, it is fascinating. A a, a guy with no prejudices or preferences that would take a person and quarantine them based on how they carry themselves. I love this about him. Always looking to share his space with any villain that is around him. Here's the truth. We hit this for a hot second in our partners meeting last week. It's the obvious truth that COVID, among many things that COVID did that we've said ad nauseum, it did rip churches apart. I, I think history will bear this out. It's a little harder to see now. With perspective, we'll see it glaringly. Um, but as much as COVID was difficult for the local church, I don't think it has anything on how we would rip each other apart when it came to things like elections, social issues, anything, riots, you name it. I think that's where we really found ourselves much more fractured because there's so much more material to disagree on. I mean, we all knew that we had disagreements among us. We all knew that there were things. We, that's the reality of the church. The reality of the church is, is that you and I, we have a few things in common, maybe little in common, and yet we have everything in common at the same time. Man, just Christ, the life, death, and life of Jesus that binds you and me tightly together, even if we have nothing in common. We're so dissimilar, you and me, and so identical all at the same time. And I think this only makes sense in relation to Jesus. Christ is our head. One of the things that Paul said to the church of Corinth, we're gonna put it up on the screen, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. I wanna remind you, by the way, whenever Paul is speaking through this passage today, he's not speaking directly to you, he's speaking to a church. There is a church that is reading this. That's the context of this. And it's gonna be very helpful for us today because this church happened to be a very factious one. They carved up personalities and opinions and views and theology and philosophies, they, they, they would start to kind of piece off and categorize each other. And he says this, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. So he's the head, we're members of the body, and we're all tethered together. But listen, being membered to each other, it's a lot easier than it sounds, isn't it? It's harder than it looks where two or three are gathered. Someone is looking to be first. Someone's looking to be the most glorious, the most correct, the most righteous, the most significant, and it's usually going to be at the cost of everyone around them. That's what we're going to find in the church. Listen, this is why so much of the New Testament is written directly to how you and me interact with each other. It it, it speaks to things like comparison and resentment and grumbling and bitterness and selfishness. All of these things are a me first, you last shape of a problem. All of them. I come first, you come last. Now listen, I just described something that sounds really toxic. That sounds like a real toxic pile. But I'm going to make the case today from your Bible that settings like this are perfect for the growing disciple. That's what we've been working on since the turn of the year is how to grow in discipleship as a normal person how to change, how to move forward, how to look more like Christ. Indignation in our midst, indignation with each other presents this rare air of discipleship that you're not going to find any other way. We've been exploring what this could look like to grow 
for a long time. But this is a passage that I've been looking forward to getting to because it shows us that disciples are actually going to grow best, grow fastest in the context of an imperfect community around villains, you and me. I mean, here I'm an imperfect guy doing life with you, imperfect people, with imperfect systems inside of an imperfect city. But I mean, if we were to just bite down on just who we are as a local church. Let's just focus on this for a moment. The local church, this, the, the fabric of who we are as a people, it takes many different shapes. I mean, we have what we have today. This is the church gathered, right? Um, we have the church scattered. That would be our missional communities. And then it even gets a little bit more tighter proximally than that where we have our DNAs, where it's one-on-one. We even have just the shallow small talk that happens before and after a service or an event. And, and by the way, it's a totally different sermon, and I won't get off track today. But that small talk, by the way, that's not valueless. There's value to small talk. I know, we, I know what we do is we appraise our relationships on, well, I'm just looking for something deep. I want to get past the small talk. You cannot do that. Small talk is where we build the trust. That's where we build the familiarity. It's very important. You should make a, a priority out of small talk. It's soil, all of it, whether we're gathered, scattered, tight, loose. It's all soil for our growth as disciples. Conversely, the opposite is also true. Alone, you're going to very quickly find your ceiling for growth. Disciples don't grow when you place them in a vacuum independent from all the people around them that might bother them. This is why we would say during the pandemic, often when it was just on video or even now as people are watching and we're on video right now, we would make the statement that virtual church is not church. Virtual church is a sermon. It's just me talking. It's being recorded. It'll be archived. People can listen to it in a month, a year, who knows how long. But that is not church. Church is you. This isn't even church. This is a gathering. Right? Hate to be a nerd about it. It sounds like I'm being a nerd right now, right? But you are the church. This is a gathering. I think it's important for us. I mean, if you're watching right now online, please don't let this be a surrogate for your local church. It's important that you find a people, a local people that you can call family, that you can call. It could just be home for you, your tribe. I know how hard this can be to find a place that you can call home. I mean, when guests come in and I meet them for the first time and I find out that they're looking for home, I find out that they're looking for something that might make sense for them, I don't forget how hard it was for them just to get out of the car, for them just to try something. I mean, friends, let's be honest. This is a high school auditorium. It's just to get out of the car. and I know it's hard, but it's worth it. It's so worth it. And if this is not going to be home for you, we can help. If you're watching and you're not in our area, Email us. We can help you. We have helped people find local churches. It's important. But the reason I say that you've hit a ceiling is because without the context of villains around you, there's no way to practice things like humility or patience or forgiveness, reconciliation, long-suffering. You can't practice those things. Patience and forgiveness, they don't make a sense without villains. I mean, just consider that for a moment. You cannot grow without broken people. You can't. And they cannot grow without you. Bringing all of your brokenness and your failures to bear. Bringing all of your regrets and your addictions to the same table. They cannot grow without you. This is what makes the local church perfect for Knoxville. This is what makes us perfect for Knoxville. Again, I'm a failed man speaking to failed people, but at least we're talking about a heroic Jesus and a 
beautiful, radiant gospel. Listen, if you came in here as a mess, you're perfect for Jesus. And he's perfect for you. You're not trespassing here, as we say. But again, conversely, we're absolutely useless if, uh, useless for Knoxville, if this is a place and we are a people where misfit toys need not apply. Villains shouldn't even bother showing up. If this cannot be a safe place for those with a dented soul and a track record and a life full of regrets. I mean, if we're not building a spot where we could have such differentiation, then what are we, what are we doing at that point? And if this is true, and I think most of you agree, especially if you're here with Legacy and you've been here for a while, you probably agree with everything I just said. If this is true, then that means a healthy church is going to have one with a lot of clashing, a lot of collisions, a lot of damage, a lot of annoyance, and potential growth. And the potential for growth. I mean, just think about this. I can only grow so much reading about long-suffering. I could memorize some passages, I could journal about it, I could fill a journal about it. But it will only be when I am in the presence of a slow grower or an addict who kind of wants to get better but kind of does not want to get better at the same time. It will only be when I'm in the presence of such a person that I have the opportunity to fail at long-suffering or grow in long-suffering, right? It will only be in the presence of that person that the Holy Spirit has me in that crucible, leads me to a closer image of Jesus by showing me what it, what it really means to be gospel-framed, gospel-shaped in the light of somebody who just might not want to change that much. Same thing goes with forgiveness. I can talk an impressive game about forgiveness. I can post about it poetically on Instagram. I can have the perfect picture and the perfect font. I can have everything perfect. I could teach classes on it. I could teach conferences on it. But it won't be until I've been hurt, I mean really hurt, damaged, that I will finally be in that tough, difficult place to reply to God in such a way, to respond to God in such a way where it says, I am yours first. We can get through this. I need your help. I need your help. I want to grow. I want to forgive. I can't see around it right now. It hurts too bad. I hurt too bad. I can't even, I can't even envision them in my mind without just getting enraged. But I trust you, Lord. Listen, you cannot grow without villains. It's not ever going to be in the absence of a mess that you grow. It's going to be in the belly of it. And this is what happens. God is glorified. God is glorified in the midst of that. This is why I get a little excited whenever I hear about a collision in one of our missional communities. I mean, I'm not excited about being, people being hurt. That'd be weird. But what I'm excited about is that there's an opportunity. There's a great opportunity. Jim is mad at Bob. Bob's mad at Karen for whatever. Who knows? It could be meaningful. It could be really stupid. But listen, there is an opportunity for something to be put down and something to be picked up. There's an opportunity for words to traffic back and forth that declare the goodness of God in the gospel and demonstrate it for a city who honestly really needs to see something like that, who honestly doesn't, doesn't just want to hear the gospel, they want to see it. Man, I get excited about that. Paul, again, talks to the Corinthian church, which really needs to hear this because they are stewing with indignation in a lot of their life from what we know of the letters. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 13. By the way, this right here, there's no marriage ceremony in Corinthians. This did not come out of a wedding ceremony right now, okay? It says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
Okay, but is this why we show each other love? Because Paul says so? Because it says so right here? Is this why we do it? Do we do this because it's the right thing to do? I mean, sure, I guess. But friends, there's a much more robust reason that Paul is even saying this. I mean, if you put your bitterness down just because it's the right thing to do, if it's just a rule that you add to your growing book of rules, it'll work until it doesn't. It'll work until the wrong person comes along and pushes you just a little too far, right? Can't pick it up as just a rule. Obedience is going to have limits without the gospel, without the gospel to give it legs. So I'd like to find a more bulletproof way to love difficult people. And predictably, we're going to find the answer in the gospel, right? The punchline is usually out there ahead of time. It's going to be in the gospel. That's where we're going to find the answer here. So I want to go back to Mark 10 because I love this passage. I love the awkwardness of it. I love the challenge in it. The main idea is James and John have a prideful moment that irritates the other ten, right? The the Bible says they were indignant. That just means bitter and annoyed, and of course they were, right? We, we, We don't have to use the deepest depths of our imagination to picture this moment right here. What they were doing is not making a statement just to Jesus. They were also making a statement to those guys, weren't they? Jesus, listen, I don't know how many chairs you have at the front of the bus, but have you considered me and James? Because, I mean, look at us, right? Look at us. I mean, those other guys, they're great. I'm glad they're on the team, but I mean, come on, right? I mean, come on. I mean, the decision makes itself, right? Am I right? I'm right, am I right? Listen, they didn't say any of that. That's all I would have heard, though. <laughs> That's all I would have heard. I would have overheard James and John just doing what they're doing, and I would have thought, are you kidding me? First of all, if anyone outranks me, it's not one of those two clowns. Listen, I've got words right now because every time James does something, I'm doing it twice as much. I mean, are you kidding me? They're calling me JV? That guy is JV. I mean, that guy doesn't, hey, John doesn't even show up to half the stuff I show up to. I mean, do you see how it would go? Do you see how quick, do you see how quick pride will just spread? All I'm doing is the same thing they're doing, self-marketing. I'm self-marketing. My ego wouldn't be able to take something like that. That's a little bit of what's going on. Immediately, my inner defense attorney would step in and lay out the case of why I deserve top billing, why I deserve it. Listen, in this passage, everyone is now tempted to put their LinkedIn profile out there so Jesus is sure not to miss anything as he is selecting who sits where and what's going on. This is so common. But I want you to notice how he handles this and how he does not handle it, okay? He handles it beautifully by starting off saying who they are not. You are not the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles, they live like this. They act like this. They handle each other like this. But it should not be so for you. It cannot be so for you. I mean, imagine if he didn't start here. Just imagine for a moment if Christ did not say this. If you listen to James and John talking, and then he looks over and he says, hey, cut that out. Breaking a couple rules right now. You guys have heard the rules? I was firmly outside the rules right there. Look at your rule book. Get the playbook back out. Guys, come on now. Get it together. All right? Or if he heard it and he just acted aloof, heard it and just ignored it, spun around and said, I don't know, lunch, guys? Ready for lunch? What do you think about lunch today? Right? He doesn't do any of that. He goes straight at it. But he goes straight at it a certain way. And this is what I love about it because we all have our own ways of dealing with this. I mean, what do you think would have eventually happened between the 10 and the 2 had Jesus just ignored what happened? Think it would have gone well? I mean, how long until, until, the, until 
Peter or Thomas use a stun gun or spit in their coffee or something like that. It's where that indignation just boils and it gets too much and then they just take action. They punch back on him. I don't think it would have taken that long. When this happens to you and me, an indignation starts to creep up and swallow our souls because someone decided to place themselves above us, annoy us or injure us to the place where we feel that indignation creeping up, we have a way of navigating this without Jesus. We do. It's in us. Without Jesus, put him on the shelf. We're not going to use him. We usually are very aggressive in that moment or very passive aggressive in that moment. Okay? The aggressive people, you know who you are. I think this is a minority position. I don't think this is most people. But some of us, when we see an offense or an injury or an annoyance, all we know is full frontal attack. Pure rage, aggression, right? And it's comfortable for you. You don't find this to be a problem for how you feel. You made the rest of the room icy, right? Nobody else in the room is very comfortable anymore, but you're okay with that. You're okay with that. And because you were enraged, it ramps the other person up. Because words, right? Words that we'll regret. And now what started as one apology turns into 16 later on down the road because of this. And what this displays, this aggressive way of working through indignation, is self-preservation at all costs. Me first. You see, the injury was me first, you last. But the person that is aggressive says, oh, no, 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 no. Me first, you last. I'm about to tell you something about yourself that you didn't know right? That's how it goes. Because for this type of person overlooking the offense, it seems unjust. So what becomes the Savior? Not Jesus, rage. Rage. That becomes the Savior from getting us from the place of feeling damaged to the place of feeling victorious is rage. Man, I think what we do when we struggle with this is we hide behind this phrase. I hear it a lot. And that is, hey, I know I came across a little angry, but something had to be said. Something had to be said. No one else is going to say it. Justice is being dropped. Someone had to get out in front of it. But what I usually also find is that person is looking for their own healing. They're looking out for number one. They're not looking out for the person that injured them. They're not responding for the sake of that person, but for the sake of themselves. So sometimes we play hide and seek with this a little bit. And there's a danger in that. I'm going to get to that here in a moment. But I think the majority position is we don't really act as aggressive, but we simmer in it. We're more passive aggressive. I think this is probably the the biggest part of the bell curve for us, which is I might not say anything at all, but I will protect myself. I will put space and distance between me and that person, the one that annoys me and the one that hurt me. But bitterness, it grows best in the dark, doesn't it? And so we grumble, grumble in our hearts, Resentment grows. Bitterness grows. Every story we hear about them and their stupid face, we see through this filter of resentment and bitterness, that person did it again. But of course they did it again, right? We start rehearsing this narrative in our mind. What we do is we might not use rage as our savior, but we are going to try to use distance and space as our savior. Friends, listen, I've done no less than 30 or 40 weddings and funerals put together. I cannot tell you how many times you'll have broken family units coming into the same room for the first time in 10, 20, 30 years, and someone's sitting as far as they can from the other people. It looks ridiculous even, right? There's nothing more Hatfield and McCoy than that. They'll even come in at different times so that they don't bump into each other in the parking lot. It looks silly, 
But we also do this when we'll drop a Bible study and join another one because that person is in it. When we drop a missional community and relocate to another one because that family is in it. And again, we hide under the statement of, listen, I have forgiven them, but I just can't trust them anymore. Hey, can we talk about that for a minute? I've forgiven them, but I just can't trust them anymore. Is that not just code for I haven't forgiven them? I do understand, and we've, we've been pretty deliberate from the pulpit on when there is discretion needed when it comes to reinstalling trust in a relationship. That's obvious. But that's like in one out of 100 cases. But we find a lot more people saying that. I've, no, I've forgiven that person. What you're really saying is, is, I know I'm supposed to forgive that person, but I really haven't, so I'll throw the Uno card down that says, I just can't trust them yet. Friends, I'm going to be honest with you. I am certainly glad that Jesus did not forgive me just to create space between me and him. That would be misshapen forgiveness, which is no forgiveness at all. It's no forgiveness at all. That's a different sermon. But sometimes even the big space we place between us and the villain is not big enough. Or sometimes the wound is too deep, so we just leave entirely. We don't even relocate, we leave. We look for a different people, a different workplace, a different marriage, a different local church. We look to move on to where people are more well-behaved and less failed. I hear this most often when people leave a church, whether it's our church or another church coming here or whatever, or they moved. or what, They are upset because the people, someone offended them, someone hurt them. And friends, let me tell you, when good people are no longer good enough, and it's obvious that indignation and resentment and some sort of unreconciled offense is involved, that ruins a gospel opportunity. Capital R ruins it because God's not glorified. God's not glorified in that. Oh, you hurt me? I'm gone. See you never. That doesn't glorify God at all. And guess what? You don't grow. Also, guess what? That person doesn't grow. That person doesn't even grow. Nobody grows. And the only person that is glorified is you in that. And everyone who witnesses something like that is either confused or as bored as I am from seeing it all the time, right? It's just an extension of passive aggression. So we're seeing these failed ways of dealing with indignation without Jesus. And if keeping indignation on this low boil doesn't work, and if just being vengeful and venting it in rage doesn't work, then how do we handle it? When the person sitting next to you is really looking out for themselves instead of you and trying to be number one, vying for first place at your cost, how do you handle that? How do you handle it when someone annoys you and they won't stop or they have injured you? How do you do it? Well, I think the predictable thing is we just crack open the Bible, right? And we turn to a place like Proverbs 19. This will be up on the screen. You can stay where you're at. It says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is glory to overlook an offense. True, true, and true. It's all true, and this is a truism in a true book. That's a true statement, right? But why? Why? Why is it your glory to... If you don't answer this question, it just becomes rule number 388, Right? If we don't answer this question, the answer is just because our offenses were not just overlooked, but they were in fact purged from our accounts. As we saw over the last two weeks, we carry this record of debt to the feet of Jesus and he wipes them clean with his courageous work. And when God is looking to place his wrath, his justice on sin, 
he overlooks his children. He overlooks. He overlooks. I mean, last week we saw and used this phrase that whenever we read the Old Testament, it's always valuable to do so through what we call gospel hindsight. Okay? So when you're reading the Old Testament, I want you to imagine there being a lens or a filter in between you and the Word of God that is the active work of God through Christ in the climax of the gospel story. That's how you want to read your Old Testament. Okay? And this is one of those moments where it shows to be very helpful. Without gospel hindsight, we just take this proverb, this proverbial truth, and we add it to the rule book. That guy's annoying. That guy's annoying me, man. I'm supposed to overlook it. Uh, what does that even look like? I'm just going to try, okay, overlooked, moving on. Okay, well, that guy hurt me. Well, I guess I'm just going to have to overlook it. Well, have you overlooked it? No, but I, but I am overlooking it. How do you know that? Because I'm saying it, I'm overlooking. I mean, what does that even mean? How do we even do something like this? Listen, it only works until it doesn't if you use it as a rule in and of itself separate from the gospel because eventually the injury seems too deep to even overlook You want to know how I know this? Talk to someone who won't forgive. Go ahead. Find somebody. Find somebody that won't forgive somebody. They will make the case that that offense was too deep. They will make that case that, yeah, Proverbs 19 is right. I mean, it is my glory to overlook an offense. It is wisdom here. But you don't know what they did to me. You don't know that they won't stop doing that. You don't know everything that I know. You're not in my shoes. Don't make the case. Don't make the case for it. This is why I love what Jesus says here. He says this at the end. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, overlooking here, if we were to just take that word, and by the way, that word in the more ancient language, it does mean the same thing as to defer Defer judgment. The Passover would come from the same language as the angel of judgment that would pass over the Israelites if they sacrificed an animal on that one day and took the blood from that perfectly put together animal, this blameless animal, and they took the blood and put it on the doorpost, effectively, the doorpost of the home, and then the angel of destruction would pass over, would overlook, would move past that house. And just like that, again, with the gospel grid in front of our eyes, judgment of death passes over us, not because our perfect sacrifice has its blood over the doors of our house, but over the doorposts of our heart. We are a different people because of what God has done. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is talking about being self-forgetful. He's talking about how we rank ourselves and search for significance. But friends, he's also talking about being indignant. That's also a form of being prideful, being indignant. But here's the good news of the gospel for the indignant of heart. You are no longer enslaved to being first. You're not. And it is a slavery. Gospel humility says that you and I, we have the freedom to disappear from center stage. Right? We have the freedom to do that. I'm free. I'm free from so much of this. I mean, listen to how he says it. He says, the first come in dead last. You want to be great? You've got to be good at serving. And how does Jesus know that? Because he came to do it himself. He came to model it. And in his modeling it, it frees me from doing it myself. He says, so so what that means for you is you're no longer enslaved to a fragile ego. Not anymore. No longer enslaved 
to being regarded. You're free to be disregarded. You're free to be annoyed. Free to stay injured. Free to overlook an offense. Free to be hospitable to villains who might not even want to change as much as I want them to change. You see, indignation, the truest voice, if you could distill it down to one voice, is simply this. I deserve better than this. That's what indignation says. I deserve better than this. Now, we've talked about grumbling a lot. We've used several passages up here in the past to talk about grumbling, which grumbling is just basically saying with the heart of hearts, if I was God, I would have done things differently than this. If I was sovereign, it'd be better than what I'm experiencing right now. Right? That's what grumbling is. But indignation is saying, I deserve better than what I'm getting. The gospel says that Jesus has given me what I don't deserve, which is grace. Or God has not given me what I do deserve, which is mercy. I like how we see it in Ephesians 2. You can stay where you're at. I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to move right back out of it. But in Ephesians 2, he's talking to another church, and he says a lot of the same things. But I want you to see how he handles us mercifully. But God, being rich in mercy... So this is him being wealthy, and he's a lot wealthier than we give him credit for. But God being wealthy, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to consider this. Who has injured you? Who annoys you? Are you married to them? Are you in community with them? Work with them? They're in your family, extended family? Who is it? Who has injured you? Who annoys you? You tell yourself that you've forgiven them, but you cannot share the same air that they're in, right? Who is that for you? If we have injured Christ, I mean annoyingly wounded him, which we did, and from deep mercy he has seated us in places indescribable, which he has, then you and I, we're free from the slavery of demanding that villains handle us perfectly. We're free from that. Because we cannot add to the significance and the wealth that he has given us. We don't have to demand it from everyone around us anymore. I mean, can you see what kind of church this would build? What kind of disciple this would build? What this would look like to a watching city? It'd be a church that stands out, as the Bible says, like lights. We would stand out. In fact, look at that. Look at Philippians 2. We'll put it up on the screen. Paul says, yet to another church, do all things without, what? Grumbling and disputing. It's the exact same thing we're talking about. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twist generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I know I say this phrase every single week, but this passage gives us room to repent. It gives us space to evaluate where we're broken. Someone in your life makes you want to leave the room whenever they walk into it, don't they? Or when they don't show up, you're secretly glad? Somebody. Maybe you've been hiding from the truth. You say you have no problem, but you wonder if maybe you've been lying to yourself. Let me tell you, when we repent before the Lord, we're not just repenting for indignation. Oh, no, that's the low-hanging fruit. We do repent for that, but we also repent for prizing the ransom of Jesus too small, too small. We have to turn also from the lie that what God gives you and me is just not enough. It's insignificant. It's insufficient. We cannot be comfortable being disregarded. That's the real sin lurking underneath the obvious sin. 
It's a distrust of the wealth of God in our lives as his children. And this right here, I think, this is my opinion, I'd never fight anyone over this, but I think this, this indignation, usually the passive-aggressive flavor of it, probably destroys community more than most other things, right? That's why I'm majoring on it. That's why I'm tightening the screws. I joke around with Chase and Charlie and Kevin and Rebecca about this because they were a part of this story, but when we lived in Florida, in church plant number two, there was, and I was on staff, there was an older woman that was coming to our gathering size, probably around 100 people, maybe less, give or take, I can't remember. But let me just say this, she was difficult. She was difficult in ways that she did not know. She was difficult in ways that she did know and just didn't care, right? Every time she showed up, it made everything complicated. It's like throwing sand in the gears, right? And when you're trying to plant a church, it's really difficult, Right? And the guests would come in, she'd run them off. <laughs> she was just always an issue. She's talking to kids, she'll say something inappropriate. Just on and on and on. And I got to where I would be like, God, would you just move her to another dadgum church? I can't take this anymore. I mean, anytime a guest would come in, I'd just kind of come over and hover and just kind of orbit, waiting to jump in and, and just kind of linebacker that thing to make sure that they didn't wait and were totally weirded out by the whole thing. I just wanted her to go somewhere else. Just go somewhere else. And I wasn't growing. I didn't have any affection for her. I didn't love her. It definitely wasn't Christ-like towards her. I didn't say anything to her about it, unless it was maybe wrapped in a little bit of anger, right? And this is what the Lord did. He moved her on. She left. I was part excited, right? And I was part ashamed. I was part ashamed. But this is what the Lord did because he loves me so much. He brought someone in that was twice as, twice as bad. Twice as bad, right? Twice as bad because <laughs> he loves me so much. Listen, the church is beautiful with different people, and we cannot grow without villains. Can't, can't do it. There's a lot of room for us to repent. And listen, if you're here and you are far from Christ, maybe you're searching, thinking, measuring, I want you to know that God overlooks an offense where he defers anger for so long, but not forever. But he does for, for a certain amount of time, which is why you're still breathing, by the way, right? You really want to look at it. But when justice comes, you need to know it's absolute and it's true. It's righteous. It's perfectly spent. It's amazing in all of its ways. Now, Jesus wears the judgment and wrath for all the sins of those who hide in him and trust him to be their righteousness. That's how the gospel works. That's the mechanics of the gospel. And I don't know where you're at with Jesus, if you're watching or if you're here. But I want you to hear he is perfect for broken and indignant people. He's perfect not just for villains, but for those who have been hurt by villains. He's perfect. And you're perfect for him. 